I start speaking, I want to add my encouragement and thanks to the youth, children's and uh, uh, young adult leaders because I, I popped down yesterday morning to say hi and uh, to encourage them. And um, yeah, as I, I got this sense as they, they were all standing up earlier that, that we need to know as a church that there are people like that standing up, backing us as a community in so many different areas, that where we've got people doing that for our youth, our kids, um, and our, our young adults work, there are people doing that in, in food bank throughout the week. There are people doing that at the back serving tea and coffee for us. There are people doing that week in, week out for our, our light groups and our home groups and investing in the spiritual discipleship in the same way we saw people standing up for pastoral care. This church is a church that stands up for one another. And I personally am I'm blessed to be a part of that church. And so, yeah, as we thank our youth and kids workers, I want us all to be encouraged that we are standing up for one another as a church. Yeah, it's, it's awesome. So, we are continuing our series of Jesus in Jerusalem, and we are on to uh, Mark 13 this morning. Um, it's quite a long chapter, so I'm going to pick bits and pieces out as, as I go along. I would encourage you, when you get home, to please be, uh, be investing some time in reading the scriptures that you hear on a Sunday morning and reading around them as well. Um, but before I get started, I, I want to go through some pictures here. Um, I brought some pictures with me. You know I like to bring pictures when I talk. Um, what do you see when you look at this picture here? Um, some of you will have seen this before. Um, can I get hands up? Who can see a young lady? Yeah? Oh, wow. There's a lot of people who can see a young lady. Uh, anyone see an old lady? Less of you can see the old lady. Who can see both? Yeah, you can see both. Great. Okay. Um, let me just see if I can point out. Hold on. Let's go back. Let's go back. So you've got, uh, you've got the young lady kind of... Ah, oh, it's not going to work, is it? I'm not tall enough. <laughs> got any tall people? I need a piggyback. Uh, come and find me afterwards. I'll show you. Uh, next, next one then. Next one. Who can see is, what's in this picture here? A tiger? No? Any advance on a tiger? There is a cowboy. Yes. There is a cowboy riding a horse in this picture. Can you see it now? Can you see it? Great. Right, we're going to move on. Next one, please. Okay. Who's seen this dress before? Yeah. Is it, uh, is it white and gold? Any hands for white and gold? Any hands for blue and black? How strange. I can't see that at all. So scary. So scary. Right. Uh, last one. Last one. Before we, uh, before we move on, which line is longer? Is the top line longer or the bottom line longer? They're the same? No, you guys have played this game before. Ah, oh, dear. Right. It's amazing what perspective can do, isn't it? You know, things can deceive our eyes. It can make the top line look longer or the bottom line look longer. It can make a dress look red and gold or black and blue. It can make a whole load of dots somehow appear like a cowboy on a horse, that kind of thing. And uh, this morning, I want, to, I want to look at this idea of perspective because in Mark 13, we see Jesus as the truth. But when there is truth... There are lies and deception. And the thing is, when we look at things with different perspectives, we can either see truth or we can see something that takes us away from the truth. So we're going to look at that when I've sorted out the brightness on my thing. One second. There we go. Can't read it from two or three feet away. Um, so let's start at the beginning. In, uh, in Mark 13, 1. 
As, uh, it literally starts with the words, as Jesus was leaving the temple. Okay, it's an important and symbolic moment. And it's an important symbolic moment because this is the last recorded time in Mark's gospel that we see Jesus inside the physical building of the temple. So I guess it's a, it's a kind of a poignant moment, really, for the disciples then to move on to discuss the building. When it says, one of his disciples says to him, look, teacher, what magnificent stones. What magnificent buildings. And I've got to be honest, the, uh, the disciple who said this has to be a man after my own heart. Uh, just ask Gemma, I get fascinated by the most inane things. And he's like, look at how big this stone is. Look at it, it's amazing. Where did it come from? How did it get here? How many people did it take to make this? Where is there even a bit of stone this large in the world for us to have been able to make a stone this big to put it here? And so the disciples say, look at this magnificent stone. Look at these magnificent buildings. And um, of course, that is not what it's all about. It's not what it's all about. Jesus doesn't marvel with them. He says the words below. He says, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on top of another. Every one will be thrown down. And it seems like that's the end of the conversation until they get to the Mount of Olives. When Peter, James, John, and Andrew finally pluck up the courage and they say, when? When will that happen? When are these giant stones, these magnificent buildings, when are they going to be thrown down? And it's a strange passage to include in the Bible, I think. It's a strange three verses to include because at no other point do you see them stop and marvel at something around them. You know, on top of Mount Hermon during the Transfiguration or perhaps as they're out in the wilderness with Jesus or something like that. They don't stop and go, how amazing is this desert? Or how amazing is this view? How magnificent are these tall cedar trees that we're looking at here? They don't stop and admire the view at any other point. What's going on? Why this building? And I think this for me is the first time in this passage where we see a deception, something that has deceived and taken the people's focus away from God, taken their focus away from Him. These weren't just any big stones, they made up the temple. And what do we know about the temple from our holiness series? We know that it was the epicenter of God's presence. But the problem was that the the, the Israelites, the Jews, they'd become more interested in the outside of the building than what was inside the building. And these stones, I just want to take a moment and tell you about these stones. Um, Josephus, who writes a lot about kind of biblical history, he tells us this, that these stones were white and strong, 50 feet long and 24 broad and 16 in thickness. So if we, um, Johnny, can I borrow you? I'm just going to get you to stand here for me. Can you stand there? Just on that, the corner of that. Helen, can you stand on the corner of the other silver bit of tape here? Great. And I'm just going to run to the back and run to the back. Okay. Andy, can you stand up for me here? Great. Thank you. And right. Can you, can you stand that here? Thank you. Brilliant. Okay, guys, take a look at these four people stood around the room. That is the diameter and the size and the space of the stones that we are talking about, all the way from Helen across to Johnny, and right back to Andy. Give Andy a wave, everybody. Brilliant. 
That is how big those stones are. You know what? They were so high that we can't even fit them inside this room. You guys can sit down now. I just wanted to visualize that for a moment. That is how big these stones are. That is how big they are. And you know what? These stones send a message. They send a message of safety and security and power and wealth and prosperity. You know, those stones weighed half a million kilos. Half a million kilos, half a million bags of sugar. Think how long it would take you to eat that. Um, it's absolutely amazing. 1.2 million pounds in old money. Um, absolutely massive. The building was still under construction even when they were there. 46 years in the making. 46 years. And the temple had become an idol. They weren't interested in the presence of God inside it. They were interested in what was outside it, how it looked. Look at how big these stones are. They were deluded, deceived by its size, its scale, its grandeur, what it said about their national heritage and their culture. It was a symbol of wealth, a symbol of stability, and when Jesus said he would throw it down, he was challenging their perceptions. He was challenging their perceptions because, you know what? The views of this world haven't changed from then to now. That in trust in buildings and in wealth and power and money is exactly where they put their trust then, and it's exactly where we put our trust now. Jesus is telling them right from the very beginning of this passage in Mark 13, do not be deceived by big stones, things that look grand, things that look great in the world's eyes, but be interested on what's inside. The stones looked immovable. The Jews thought you couldn't move them. They made them by the, the work of hands, but the sovereign God is over all of those things. You know what? Let's remember that when Jesus was put inside a tomb, over Easter weekend, they thought nobody's moving that stone. On Easter Sunday, the stone was moved. Jesus was alive because God is sovereign over all of creation. And you know what? Jesus' prophecy about the temple came to fruition in AD 70. The Romans quelled a Jewish uprising. You know what? Security and stability in stones, it's not there. It's not there to be found. Not a single stone was left on top of another. And the irony was, the building was only completed for seven years before that happened. All those years, all those giant stones, all the people's lives invested in making this beautiful grand statement of wealth, prosperity, and of culture. And in seven years, only seven years of it being fully ready and fully built, it was gone. You know, there's a symbolism in all this too. There's a symbolism that the temple was the symbol of the old covenant agreement between God and humanity. For those of you not familiar with the word covenant, it's, uh, it's another word for agreement um, between God and his people. And the first covenant agreement was established back when the Ten Commandments were established in the book of Exodus. And under this new relationship with God, the one that Jesus was there to usher in, it wasn't going to be about a building. The temple's purpose had been fulfilled. The good news is that we are and always were his masterpiece. The work on the physical building was to reflect 
God's glory. But the real glory was within. The real glory was found inside, in his presence, and now in us. God's presence lives. In the scripture, it tells us that don't you know that your body is a temple, the temple of God. You are the place where God has chosen to put his presence. He's put his presence inside you. It's not about the outside, but it's the inside. Don't be deceived and think that God can't move the stones. Don't be deceived and think that God can't destroy the idols, the things that trap you, the things that you worship that you don't even know that you're worshiping. He destroyed the temple. He rolled the stone away on Resurrection Sunday. He is infinitely able to do even more in your life. Those stones were a symbol of wealth and security, wealth and stability, wealth and prosperity. And um, later on in, in Mark 13, Jesus introduces or reintroduces the concept of the fig tree into the equation. And we don't have many fig trees around here. Anyone seen a, a live fig tree in their garden? Yeah, okay, good. Yeah, a few people growing figs in their garden. Figs were everywhere in, um, in, in the Middle East. Or well, they probably still are. I haven't been across the check. Um, but it has a lot of biblical significance. In fact, it's the third tree mentioned in the Bible. So you've got the, uh, the tree of, uh, of knowledge of good and evil. You've got the tree of life. And then in at number three is the fig tree. Um, so I don't think it's necessarily a hierarchy of trees. I think the first two are definitely great. And then um, the, um, the fig tree is probably, you know, in line with all the others. But it has a symbol. Um, and the symbol that the fig tree is, is interestingly enough, of wealth and blessing, prosperity and blessing, those things. And so we've already seen in Jesus' time in Jerusalem this symbol of the fig tree being used by Jesus to tell a story. And that was in Mark 11. So two weeks ago, I, I brushed over this topic. I want to give us a quick um, overview of what was going on with the fig tree in this scenario. And it goes a bit like this. Jesus walks up to a fig tree in search of some figs. It's a good place to go and get figs from, I imagine. Um, and uh, what he finds is he finds leaves, but no fruit. And it says that the, the figs weren't in season. So why would Jesus be looking for figs when they're not in season? Well, for those of you who own a fig tree, you'll know the answer to this one, which is that the fruit precedes the leaves. There's always fruit in advance of leaves. So if it's not quite in season, you still should be able to see the signs of the coming blessing on the branches. And so Jesus then wanders off, having cursed the tree, and he enters the marketplace, the marketplace which has been conveniently situated inside of a temple. That doesn't seem like a good place for a market to me. And in this market, Jesus turns over tables and he has a go at them for excluding the poor and the marginalized because you know what they're doing there? They're worshiping wealth and prosperity. And so the fig, again, this symbol can be seen. The next day he returns to the tree. The tree is dead, withered from the roots. And it's a story about God's people at the time. It's a story. Jesus came looking for fruit. He came looking for signs of the blessing that he and the Father and the Spirit poured out on the Jews, on Israel. And when he got there, he found them oppressing the poor. He found them keeping people at arm's length from God's presence. The very purpose that they'd come to earth 
to be. The, the very purpose that he'd created this people for was to be a blessing, a blessing to all nations and to all people. And instead, they were storing up wealth and security for themselves. They'd made wealth the idol. So outside of these explicit examples, the fig tree had meaning. It was a meaning of blessing and security. And so Jesus used the fig tree to tackle another deception. We've got this section here, which is now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as it starts, uh, as soon as it gets twigs, uh, sorry, as soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will not pass away until these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But about that day or the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door, keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether he will come in the evening or at midnight, or when the cock crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. He uses the tree to teach a lesson. You know, we, we have this, this saying, you know, spring has sprung. You know, you start to see flowers and um, daffodils and crocuses popping up out of the ground, snowdrops, that kind of stuff. They're kind of signs that something's going to happen. They're the signs that it's going to get warmer. It's a sign that it's going to stop raining all of the time. Um, and if we can see the physical signs of spring, how much more so should we be training our eyes towards the spiritual signs? The spiritual signs of coming blessing, the spiritual signs of coming prosperity. But this is where we must be on guard against the second deception that Jesus teaches about in this passage. And it's the deception of knowledge. You know, there's the deception of wealth, stability, security that we can get in the physical. But there's also this deception of knowledge, of knowing things. You know, what, what this talks about here is not knowing when things are going to happen. And if we go right back to the first few verses, the disciples said, Look, teacher, these massive stones, what magnificent buildings. And Jesus told them that they would be destroyed. And what did they say? They said, tell us when. When is this thing going to happen? They wanted knowledge. They wanted to be able to foretell the future. They wanted to be able to look into it and prepare for it. Don't we all? Don't we all? Don't we all wish we knew what next Saturday's lottery numbers would be? We all wish we knew something about what the future was going like, to look like. Am I going to get the grades that I want to? Will I get the promotion that I'm looking for? Will I get the job that I'm applying for? Those kinds of things. Looking for security in knowledge is the deception that we're talking about here. This isn't the life that we're called to with one eye on the future, worrying about what's going to happen next and actually how we can prepare ourselves, our family, those kinds of things. What did Jesus tell the disciples? He said, you do not know when that time will come. 
or about that day or the hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. When will the temple be destroyed? Keep your eyes on me, is what Jesus says. Be on guard, be alert, watch. He shifts our attention from worldly knowledge and worldly things to him in this passage. Watch for him. Not the violence, not the wars, not the situation around us. They're not the main event. The main event is him. So watch, because we do not know when the owner of the house will come back, is what he says. And this is language that he's used before. If you're familiar with some of the parables that he said, he's presented himself as the owner of the house in other parables. And so he's telling us to stay focused on him and stay focused on the work that he has given us to do. Don't waste your time trying to gather knowledge about when things will happen, whether near or far, now or in the future, but focus on what he is calling you to do. That's what he's saying here. And the reality is that both these deceptions, whether the the deception of physical things, wealth and security or knowledge, both of them are rooted in fear. In fear that I won't be safe that I won't be able to provide for my family, that I won't know when bad things are going to happen, that I won't be prepared for when that time comes. Can anyone relate to that? Those fears about those things. You know, they creep into all of us from time to time. So why do you think Jesus picked this moment to talk to his disciples about these two things? He picked this moment because he knew and he said that trials are going to come. Trials are going to come. But as the Apostle John teaches us, God's perfect love casts out all fear. And that's why he tells us to keep our focus on him. Don't look to the world for signs of safety and security. Don't look to the world for blessing, for provision, because you won't find it there. They'll pass away. They'll be destroyed. They'll let you down. You'll make the calculations wrong and the thing that you thought that you knew, it isn't true after all. Look to him, the one who created you. Look to him, the one who created these giant stones in the first place. Look to him who the glory of this building was designed to be for. It's not about the building, it's about what's inside. And you know, when we are afraid, that's when we're most susceptible to deception. Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come claiming that I am he. And they will deceive many. He warns them that people will come claiming to be the Messiah, claiming to be the Son of God, claiming to be him. And so we must know what he looks like. We must pattern ourselves on Jesus so close. We must train our eyes on him in a way that when someone comes and claims, yes, I have the coming blessing. I know what the coming blessing is, that we can then test that and say, is this good? Is it true? Is it from him in the first place? And one of the last things that he shares with his disciples before he goes to the crosses, he says, um, he gives them comfort for the times of trouble. He says, whenever you're arrested and brought to trial, don't worry beforehand about what you are to say. Just say whatever is given to you at the time. For it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. 
Jesus is speaking to them at a point where the Holy Spirit hadn't been poured out on all people. But he was telling them to have confidence and security, even blessing in these short words. Because the Holy Spirit until that time had been restricted to uh, a special few people. To, to kings, to rulers, to, to priests. And so what Jesus was saying actually is that you will have the Holy Spirit. You'll have the highest blessing there is possibly available. You'll have the Holy Spirit living in you. And so the ultimate answer to deception and the ultimate answer to fear is God's love. And we see it made visible through Christ. And we see it made visible through Scripture when Jesus is no longer visible to us. And we experience it through the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. So how do we defeat deception? We ask the Spirit, does my response come out of fear? Am I trying to create security for myself? Am I trying to create prosperity for myself? Am I trying to know things for myself? Because in the, the physical, things can appear in one way. Just as the, um, the picture of the, the lady could look like a young lady or an old lady. Just as the picture of the dress can appear blue and black or white and gold. In the physical, things can look completely different to the way in which God sees them. Completely different to the world that he wants. And we are looking for God's perspective on the world, not the world's perspective on God. So to finish, I want to take a moment and ask God, what things do we marvel at? What things do we place our security in? What things do we look to as signs of blessing of prosperity that don't honor God? Where are we looking for security through knowledge? Where are we worrying about the future? And I want us to submit those to God and invite His Holy Spirit to come into these situations and ask Him to give us a godly perspective on them. So let's take a moment. And do that. Lord God, we submit ourselves to you afresh this morning. Everywhere and every way in our lives that doesn't honor you, we submit to you. We repent, we turn back, we ask for your forgiveness. For the areas where we've tried to create safety, stability, security, that looks more like the way that the world creates safety, stability, and security. We repent, God, and turn back from those things. And we ask, would you come? Would you come and heal us? Would you come and show us your love? Would you cast out 
all fear from our lives and help us, God, to trust you and you alone with our future, with our blessing, with our prosperity, with our stability and security. Come Holy Spirit and minister to us, we pray. Amen.